there are average people who are not in the business at all that say good luck with the strike because it struck a chord. It's like the emperor's new clothes. When you finally say the emperor has no clothes on, he's naked, everybody begins to pivot the conversation. And you can essentially have a paradigm shift. That's the bigger story here. Fran Drescher, yes, that Fran Drescher, the one from the 90s sitcom The Nanny, is now one of the most important labor leaders in America. After decades spent writing and starring in her own TV shows and advocating for healthcare reform through her organization Cancer Schmancer, Drescher is now putting her skills towards demanding a better contract for her fellow creators. In July, the actors in SAG-AFTRA joined screenwriters in the Writers Guild in a strike demanding better treatment from major Hollywood studios and streamers. And as president of SAG-AFTRA, she's now at the helm of one of the most significant labor events in Hollywood history, a double strike that has effectively shut down the entertainment industry as writers and actors demand a fair share of the enormous profits of their work. But the historic double strike isn't just about movies and television. It also has major implications beyond entertainment. Because SAG and WGA aren't just demanding fairer compensation. They're also demanding stronger industry-wide protections against studios using artificial intelligence to replace writers and actors. That means that SAG and the WGA are at the vanguard of a broader fight to protect human jobs from AI not just for actors and writers, but for lawyers, doctors, journalists, and more. Which means that Drescher isn't just demanding fair treatment for Hollywood actors. She's leading a strike that may result in protections that could set a standard for all American workers. I'm Charlotte Alter, senior correspondent for Time, and this is Person of the Week. So... One of the main things that is being talked about in this strike is that not all actors are movie stars. And certainly even movie stars, for a lot of their careers, they're journeyman actors working and getting it done. So can you explain what working in the industry was like at that stage in your career? Well, I mean, I remember vividly when I got my first union card In those days, AFTRA and SAG had not merged yet, and so I had an AFTRA card, I had a SAG card, and I was very proud of both, and I felt like a professional actor, and it really meant the world to me. And I think that when you're aspiring towards something that's a little outside of the box, maybe not something that your family ever did or thought that you would ever do, there's a romanticism to it. There's a dream that you're pursuing, and that carries you through the lean times and I think that many, many people who are striving in the industry get very used to working multiple jobs so that they can keep pursuing the dream, the thing that really makes their heart sing. And, you know, in a way, we're all making believe in a very believable way. That's our craft. But In our union today, 86% of our members, and we have 160,000 members, can't make the threshold to get medical benefits. So most of them, 86% of them, 
are how we describe the journeyman performer. Right. These are the people that are living their dream, but just making maybe a living at it or not even have to supplement the dream with working straight jobs. So can you just tell me a little bit about your early life? I mean, you aspired to be an actress from such a young age. How did you get your big break and make it in this industry? I think that at the time that I was starting to work as a professional actress, there was a lot of New York stories being told. Hmm. It was the time of the Sweathawks, Welcome Back, Cotter. All of that had a certain kind of vibe to it that I sort of fit into. And so I did well at auditions, and I started to book work. After I did a small part in Saturday Night Fever with John Travolta, then I ended up uh, working opposite Jay Leno on a movie here in Los Angeles. And even though I had come out to only do it for the 10-week shoot that was scheduled, I kept booking other things. So that's kind of how I ended up here. And one thing led to another, and I kept doing parts in movies and pilots that didn't get picked up until I got lucky and suddenly people began to know who I was. And I was sort of getting known as this pretty comedian with a funny voice. So you mentioned your family earlier. Did you come from a union family? I came from a union neighborhood. Right. The electrician's union was the big union in our neighborhood. And I came from a very middle-class family. My dad worked two jobs when I was very young. You know, if we went out to a restaurant, it wasn't anything fancy. And then we didn't order dessert because that would jack up the price. You'd go home and have ice cream out of the freezer. So I lived not ever taking anything for granted, even though we were happy and living in gratitude for what we had. And most of the characters that I end up playing and end up writing for me to play are very much from the world that I grew up with and all the people that I grew up with. My parents are very ethical people, and they taught me to be very respectful and honoring of working people. Right. Well, so on that note, you mentioned that a lot of the characters that you create and play yourself in some ways sort of resemble the world that you grew up in. So I have to ask you about the nanny. Where were you in your career when you came up with the idea for the nanny with your then-partner, Peter Mark Jacobson? I did a short-lived series for CBS called Princesses Mm -hmm. with Twiggy and Julie Haggerty, and then it was pulled. And then I decided that, you know, I'm going to go on a holiday because my girlfriend invited me to visit. She had like this little country house in southwestern France, and I'd never really traveled to Europe by myself, but I did for the first time. And it was on that journey that I ran into the president of CBS. On that literal plane, right? On the plane. Not the general journey. (laughs) No, no. On the flight to France, 
He walked onto the plane, and I was already seated. And I said, Jeff, and he said, Fran. And then I ran into the bathroom to put some makeup on. And I spent the next, you know, good part of the nine-and-a-half-hour flight convincing him that he needed to hear me and Peter's ideas from me because we really understood my brand of comedy. Mm -hmm. And by the end, he said, okay, when we get back, call my office, and I'll set you up a pitch meeting with our head of comedy development. And I didn't even really have the idea, even though I'm sure I made it sound like I did. And then it was on that trip when I connected with Twiggy in London and spent a little time with her daughter that I thought of the nanny. And I called Peter, who was back in Los Angeles, and I said, what do you think about a spin on The Sound of Music? Only instead of Julie Andrews, I come to the door. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he has a very good sense for these things. Yeah. And he thought for only a moment and then said, that's it. That's the show we'll pitch to CBS when you get back. And that was the beginning of the beginning. So you wrote and produced this show as well as starring in it. And it was a time when TV was a different industry. And so how did you maintain creative control over this show that was really your and Peter's idea? Uh, You know, it was a merging of different elements that all came together in a perfect way. Back then, you knew who the owners were. And the executives, you knew who they were, too. Mm -hmm. And they all saw something in me and really kind of plugged into my strengths as a comedic leading lady, even though Princesses was the closest thing I had come to that But still, I was sharing the bill with the two other ladies. Wow. Right. So in some ways, The Nanny is one of these shows that's gone from syndicated to streaming. And primetime. It has a long tail and around the world. Yes, exactly. And after running them with subtitles of being dubbed in various countries around the world, they bought the scripts to reproduce them. Wow. With local cast in their language. So what did that long tail mean for the industry now that people who are working on these hit shows don't necessarily get to see the long benefits from all that work in the way that you did? Well, essentially that's, you know, a major negotiating point that instigated the strike because the old model of what residuals was based off of worked. Right. And the foundation of that began when this contract was first constructed in the early 1960s. Mm -hmm. So that's a very long time ago and a world away. And now to try and what, get some kind of incremental raise on a residual structure that's based on a business model that no longer exists, it's not going to ever give any of the performers, or the writers for that matter, the income that we count on. So you have to either change the business model or 
change the structure of the contract. Right. And since it's unlikely that the business model is changing anytime soon, then it's the structure of the contract that has to change to complement what is currently profoundly entrenched in our business nowadays. More with sag after President Fran Drescher on how she learned to organize when we come back. So, obviously, being an actor and a performer was a dream for you from a young age, but I want to talk about what led you to become a union organizer. Did you have an early experience of some kind that made you think, you know what, organizing is something I'd be good at? Well, I do have a facility to see what's systemically wrong. Mm -hmm. My father is a systems analyst, and I think that I inherited that ability to look at a global picture and really kind of break it down and see where it's systemically problematic. That's interesting. I mean, I organized my own nonprofit, Cancer Schmancer. As a cancer survivor, I didn't just survive. I felt that there were problems in the way the medical world was approaching cancer itself. And I wanted to help change the narrative for that, as I'm doing in SAG-AFTRA. I didn't solicit this position, although I've always gone to the mat for those that are marginalized. And that's why when I was approached to run for sag after president, I completely agreed that I had what it was going to take to make a difference. You know, it takes activism. It takes empathy. Mm-hmm. It takes an ability to break things down and not be afraid to rebuild them. You have to be able to go to Washington and get the job done there. And I don't live to do this, though I knew I would be good at it. And maybe because I'm not a politician and I didn't strive to be this is part of the secret sauce of why I'm good at it, because I just speak my truth, and I'm not trying to align with any particular politics or party policy or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I've always told everybody, just come and talk to me. Yeah. So had you ever considered doing this before? No, no, not this. I've been asked many times to run for public office. And it's always rattled around in the back of my head. But I also always felt that as a celebrity, my activism had a lot more freedom outside of Capitol Hill to influence people on behalf of the greater good. Mm -hmm. So I never thoroughly dipped my toe into it, even though I got a bill passed by unanimous consent. That's tough. I was 
appointed the vetted position of public diplomacy envoy for the U.S. State Department as a health ambassador, and I was sent around the world to our allied nations and military bases Mm -hmm. talking about the Fran Plan, which I developed at Kansas Schmansa, and I was talked about as one of the top five celebrity lobbyists who get the job done. Don't just show up to take the picture, but actually stay Mm -hmm. and make the difference. So I accomplished a lot without actually being an elected official, which is great because I don't want to spend my life raising money. Right. I want to make a difference. And if I can leverage my global celebrity to do that, okay. Yeah. So when the Writers Guild announced they were going to go on strike, how did that influence the decision for SAG-AFTRA to go on strike? Well, don't forget, I'm in the Writers Guild, too. Right, exactly. (laughs) And I'm also in the Directors Guild. So I always say writers rule. Mm -hmm. And if it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. So these are two things that I've said for decades. Yeah. And I really feel like, again, this is a community that is being not exalted, but diminished. Mm -hmm. And that is such a wrong way to deal with talent in an industry that's predicated on talent, a collaborative art form. And... The very essence of a collaborative art form is that we are integral to the success of the industry. So why get people in leadership of the industry that is dismissive and diminishing? That's why my speech you know, went around the world. That's why when I'm with my parents in South Florida, Mm -hmm. there are workers that are thanking me who are not in the business. There are average people who are not in the business at all that say good luck with the strike because it struck a chord. It's like the emperor's new clothes. When you finally say, you know, the emperor has no clothes on, he's naked, everybody begins to pivot the conversation. And you can essentially have a paradigm shift. That's the bigger story here. I totally agree with you because I feel like the actor strike and the writer strike are in many ways the tip of the spear for this new conversation that people are having around labor rights, particularly as it relates to AI. So for our listeners who are not totally caught up on this, can you explain the threat of AI in Hollywood right now and how this strike is helping to address that? Well, there doesn't seem to have been any thought put into that this potentially could put a lot of humans out of work all over the world and in all different walks of life. Not just writers and performers, doctors, and lawyers, and authors, and, you know, the list goes on and on. A human cashier, when I go into a local store. Yeah. Where are those people? I saw a little box robot 
going around making deliveries here in Santa Monica. And it's like that used to be a person on a bicycle. Where is that person? So what I'm calling industry out on is that we have to reinvent what the word success means Mm -hmm. because it can't just be about the bottom line. Profit at the expense of all things of true value, humanity, other life, the very planet itself cannot be what is expended for the sake of profit. Right. That's maniacal and sociopathic. And that's what we really have to be talking about when we talk about AI. If big business stops caring about people and planet, we're living in a time that is our own dystopia. Yeah. Not just entertainment on streaming channels, but we're actually living it. And we have to wake up and smell the coffee right now. This is an inflection point. So I understand there are many reasons why SAG is on strike, but not all of our listeners will understand all of them. So can you describe just maybe two of the biggest sticking points between the studios and SAG right now? Well, not to say that everything isn't meaningful and important. We represent a lot of different career paths. But I would say that the thing that will impact everyone, if not today, but tomorrow, is that the bottom line, you know, what we would consider minimum wage, has to catch up to inflation. Because we never had that baked into the deal. Mm -hmm. So whatever you get as your contract, you have to live with that for three years, and then you renegotiate again, but inflation is always ahead of you. So that has to catch up to inflation. And then AI has to have barricades put around it. We are our likeness. We are our voices. We are our behavior. Right. And compensation and consent belongs with us. You don't own it. You never own it. It's not for you to have. If you would like to use it, you can very kindly come to us and we'll establish something whereby we'll let you rent it Mm -hmm. if we want to. And if you think that you can scan us and own it and use it, it's going to put real talent, artistry out of business. And they're going to keep normalizing it. And they're going to keep having the viewers get used to it so that before you know it, they're basically looking at digitally generated performers And the rest of us will be out of work. Yeah. So far, SAG and the WGA have not called for viewers to stop watching Netflix or Hulu or any of the streamers or to boycott any of the studios. Is that coming? You know, it very well could come, definitely. I don't know how much that would put a chink in their armor. Really? Well, I don't know. I mean, they have millions of subscribers all over the world. Right. And 
we're 160,000 members, and then maybe you can convince some friends and family. So it's possible that it could do some damage to them. We're holding on to that as a possible Trump card, if you're part of the expression, when we need it. We don't really need it in this minute because we're on the front pages and we have a righteous fight. There was just a significant poll taken, a very credible pollster company that said that the majority of the people absolutely align themselves with the SAG-AFTRA members and our plight. They identify with. Right. So we're still planning rallies and everything else. You know, we had a big turnout on Solidarity Day. We had a huge turnout at Latino Day for picketing. Mm -hmm. We're meeting with our negotiating committee. And it's very fluid. Right. As I explained to everybody, this is happening in real time. And as things occur, we make decisions. We're reacting to what's happening, too. So, Fran, thank you so much for joining us today. We've talked a lot about how you're working to reshape Hollywood and all the great work you're doing with the SAG after strike. But now we want to hear a little bit more about how some everyday things shape you. So I'm going to ask you just a couple of, like, fast-paced, lighthearted, rapid-fire questions where you just say the first thing that comes to your mind, okay? Okay, but let me just preface this. Sure. I'm very bad at this. And uh, historically, I have always said, over all the years I've been in this business, do not put me on a celebrity game show because I (laughs) shut down. Okay, fire away. Okay, so when's the last time you visited Flushing? When I shot a CBS Sunday morning episode while I was doing Cinderella on Broadway. And when's the last time you walked your dog? Yesterday. When's the last time you had someone over for dinner? Dinner, probably Saturday. And that was my first day back after a grueling three and a half weeks on the road. And what we basically did was move around all my deck furniture in preparation for the hurricane. (laughs) And so when's the last time you wrote a note to yourself? I often write notes to myself. So when was the last? Well, you know those e-cards that people send out? And I send them out too. And I always send it to me and the person that's getting it. Because it always has a sentiment that I think I should send to myself too. And then I actually thank myself. (laughs) And I send back a reply to it. And then I get that as well. (laughs) So you reply to your own e-cards. Yeah. And last one, when's the last time you gave advice to a young actor? Just today, actually, because I want people to realize that social media doesn't stay with who you think you're talking to. And if you don't understand that sometimes the things that you say may be held against you, if you don't do it right. And that was said to a younger actor. You may not think he's young, but he's considerably younger than me. (laughs) 
Fran, thank you so much for taking so much time out of your busy day. I'm so appreciative of you coming on the show. And also, I meant what I said about how the actors and the writers are the tip of the spear. I mean, so many other industries are relying on you to get these guardrails around AI up. So thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate it. If you want to learn more about the sag After strike, you can visit their website at SAG-AFTRA-STRIKE.org. Thank you so much for listening to Person of the Week. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. So please send your tips or thoughts on our show to personoftheweek at time.com. I'm Charlotte Alter. See you next week. Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. It's produced by Nina Bisbano and India Witkin. Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Rebecca Seidel and Aaron Dalton. Our in-studio engineer is Elliot Lowe. Our theme music was composed by Billy Lippi. Joseph Frischmuth is our fact checker. Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Sugar 23. At Time, our executive producers are Mike Beck and Sam Jacobs. At Sugar 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the head of audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.